Now, to ask you a question about your own life, how would your life be different if no one ever lied to you? No one. Think of how your life would be different if no one ever lied to you. No one ever broke a promise. Or what about if you, how would your life be different if you never broke a promise, never gave a false testimony, never lied? One of the amazing things about God in understanding who he is in in terms of like a systematic theology and understanding of who God is, is God is completely true. Understanding that or understanding his truthfulness as something that completely separates him from anything else that we might see in the world around us. His word is perfect. His, his spoken words are true, and he is the embodiment of truth. And his son, in our passage this morning, is concerned with his son's own followers of, of having lives that are completely true. Now, in our day, words almost mean nothing, don't they? People lie all the time. Or they fudge their words a little bit. Or they might even put a caveat on a contract that they're willing to sign. I was two years old when one of the most infamous phrases was ever uttered by a politician. So I remember it quite well. He said this phrase with such confidence. And then later by breaking it, I think it lost him his base. And then cost this president his re-election. It was George H.W. Bush who uttered the phrase, no new taxes. But that's not what actually did him in, was it? The reason why he lost so many followers was because he and was not so much that he and Congress raised taxes. It wasn't even because he didn't go through with the promise of no new taxes, but because he started off that phrase with read my lips, no new taxes. And people do this politely all the time, saying a a randomly but probably false reason for why they were late. Or they'll say that they do this or that, but they don't really follow up with that. Or even more seriously, they'll say that they'll take you till death do us part. But we see so often, as we looked at last week, how that doesn't always shake out. Now, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20 tells us of Jesus teaching his followers that unless their righteousness surpasses the scribes and Pharisees, they won't enter heaven at all. Scribes and Pharisees were famed for their strict following of the law's regulations. But I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't tell his followers to outdo the scribes and Pharisees' regulations, but rather their own righteous living. And what Jesus keeps driving at again and again in a series of many sermons, you could call them within a mega sermon of the Sermon on the Mount... What Jesus keeps driving at again and again is you can't surpass anyone in righteousness through having more laws than they do or by keeping less laws than they do. He's talking about an outward action, but actually drawing its logical beginning to the actual heart. He's saying that we need to examine ourselves out here, but we need to recognize where those things actually come from, our very heart. So he's teaching the law, but demonstrating how people are missing the point of the law altogether. And driving home on this point, this paragraph, this time, by speaking on how a Christian ought to observe or take or not take an oath. The believer at his word is what Jesus is bringing to our attention. So, brings, so Jesus brings up the Mosaic legislation on oaths. 
Now, if you're using an outline this morning, I want to briefly talk to you about the mosaic legislation that Jesus is talking about there. Number two on your outline, people here in Jesus's time were making a complete mockery of God's law altogether. And they were thinking that they were making a mockery of God's law by either being clever or they were thinking that they were being more righteous. They were taking something that was true and either expanding it or contracting it in order to do whatever they want, in order to either get away with stuff or to exclude people from their livelihood. They refrained from literal adultery, and so they thought that they were pure. But Jesus says that we must be pure in heart. That leads to an action of adultery. They, they divorced one another with a kind certificate and thought that they were demonstrating God's love altogether. But Jesus was saying how wrong that was. Or they stopped short of murder, and so they saw themselves as very patient people. But Jesus is saying that they are missing the spirit of the law by creating and adding to the law with different regulations. So what you see here in this passage is Jesus demonstrating a deeper problem that his followers have. They have a deeper heart issue than they ever would have imagined. Their very words were hanging them out to dry when they thought their words were bringing them life. And you think about the cycle of, of this text, how it's unfolding. You would imagine that, that he is showing them where they're sinning, and then again, showing them again where they're sinning, and showing them again where they're sinning. And the point of this is to actually have us examine our own hearts in its relationship to our own activities. Now, there's an intended use of this Mosaic law that, that Jesus first speaks of there in the text, starting in verse 33. There's an intended use that, that the law was originally created in oaths, or promises, oaths were and are agreements designed to restrain lies and false promises. That's, what, that's why someone would take an oath. It was to help them restrain from lying. Oaths and vows are rarely used formally today. You know, they're used for things like joining a church or becoming an officer in the military or getting married where you promise before God and witnesses or even testifying in a courtroom or taking an office Uh, in politics. Now, we make promises beyond this to our friends, don't we? We promise all the time of things that we will do and things that we will live up to. We also sign massive contracts on houses. And uh, before we even start a job, maybe you want to see the bottom line of what you're getting into and actually have your boss say, I will pay you this much and you will agree to work this much for that contractual payment. Oaths and promises and contracts have goals, And that's to keep people under an agreement, to keep people true to their word, especially when there's an incentive to break a deal. I want you to go back to the book of 1 Samuel. So in the Old Testament, if you've got a Bible, go to the book of 1 Samuel, and we see a sense of where this is being talked about. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 3. 1 Samuel chapter 12, Verse 3, remember that oaths are intended to keep people from breaking that very oath because there is a, uh, a penalty if someone were to break that. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 3 says, Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe? To blind my eye with it. Testify against me and I will restore you. In the Bible's times, oaths were important and actually very regular for God's people to make and to take. Israel learned to swear in the presence and in the name of God 
in order to almost make a covenant within themselves that they will carry out with that oath. And when they were doing this in the name and in the presence of God, they were recognizing that he would be their judge if they were to break an oath. God was their witness and would be their judge if they lied. So you see the serious of, of taking an oath in the name of God. Now Jesus in verse 33 actually summarizes many of the verses in the Old Testament. So what we've seen in different ways in, in this unfolding set of passages is that Jesus will often quote from the Old Testament, but also he will summarize different arguments from the Old Testament and then say something you've also heard it put a different way or another way. And I just want us to look at the basic text first of what Jesus is referring to when he's talking about those. So I want you first to turn to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, third book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 19 and verse 12. Uh, hear this, when, when Jesus is talking about taking an oath, here, here is some of the language that he's using. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 12, it says, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Or now turn to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 23, just two books over. The book of Deuteronomy, chapter 23. Deuteronomy 23, verse 21. Deuteronomy 23, verse 21. It says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed from your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. And then lastly here, turn to the book of Numbers. Turn back to the book of Numbers. One book. The book of Numbers chapter 30. Book of Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. Numbers verse 30, chapter 2. It says, if a man vows a vow to the Lord, or he swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds from his mouth. So the intention of these oaths were regulations on people keeping, these, on people keeping their own word. That The seriousness of what Jesus is bringing to their attention here is by not only demonstrating, demonstrating what an oath is at its root, but also saying that they shouldn't take an oath when they're around each other. And it's still God's will for us today that we should do what we say. It's still God's word, not just from those in the Old Testament or those who lived long ago in the New Testament, but it's still God's will for us that we would do everything we said we would do. Others depend on our very word. Anyone who's ever had their word broken or has had a sense of distrust because people don't fulfill what they said they're going to fulfill, know the seriousness of what it means to keep your own word. Even when things change, even when uh, with faithfulness it seems to be strenuous in our own lives, even at the point of great loss, we should still be people who keep our word. We should still be people who fulfill our promise because the act of lying is not only an effect against you and the people around you, which is one of the things that Jesus is demonstrating, but the sin that you commit against others or even against yourself is actually a sin against God himself. Breaking a vow is only right in God's eyes if keeping it requires us to then sin. Otherwise, we should always be people of our word. So there's an intended use of an oath that we would be 
under it for the sake of not lying, that there, there, there's this carrot in front of us and a stick behind us that we would keep our word. But there was also a modern misuse in the New Testament time. And in Jesus's time, there was a modern misuse of how people were misusing the law. You'd think the teaching on vows is helpful. Why would Jesus even need to bring up any sense of abuse? It's pretty clear cut, right? Don't break a vow. Why is he bringing up how they were abusing this? Remember this in context is Jesus demonstrating again and again of how they think they're pursuing the law, but they're actually making the law more in the image of themselves rather than seeing what the law was intended for altogether. How could they be abusing something so straightforward? Don't break your word. Don't lie. Well, in Jesus' day, rabbis figured out very complex systems that undermined oaths. You may not have to fulfill an oath depending on how or by what you made that oath. So the examples that are given in this text in a different way, you didn't have to fulfill an oath, for example, if you swore by Jerusalem. But you would have to fulfill an oath if you swore to Jerusalem. Because one you don't own, but one is then the direction of your desire. They said that if you swore by a temple, it's not binding. But if you swore by the, by the temple's gold, it is binding. Or if you swore by an altar of sacrifice, it's not binding. But if you swore by the gift of that very altar, it actually does become binding on you. The, the modern way that you might think of this is if you were to make a promise, but cross your fingers behind your back, do you really have to keep that promise? No, because you crossed your fingers behind your back. And what Jesus is doing and demonstrating is saying, that's not an oath. You're a liar. You can't just add or take away from the law and say, well, but like, had they known what I was thinking, then they would have understood that I actually wasn't going to fulfill that. Jesus is saying that this perverts oaths altogether by adding to it. Instead of calling on God as intended, uh, one phrased an oath so that they could avoid God's punishment when you lied. In Jesus's names, since the system was corrupt, oaths were no longer a guarantee of anything. And so he says, look at verse 34, do not take an oath at all. He removed the artificial distinction between vows that invoke God's name, which would make it binding, and those that don't invoke God's name, which would make it not binding. Whatever we swear by, Jesus said, it refers to God because he created the heavens and the earth. If someone swears by heaven, he evokes God because that's his throne, if he invokes earth, well, that's God's too, because that's his footstool. If we invoke Jerusalem, well, that's God's city. And if you swear by the hair of your own head, one might say that they are not invoking God, but remember who rules all of the hairs of your head. And the connotation there would have been the same connotation that it would have been said today, because people would have gone to great lengths to make things like their hair or their palaces or their world into something that they thought that everyone else would desire. And the context there is that even if you dye your hair, it is still under the rule of God altogether. So Jesus was combating the modern misuse by teaching on the original intention. Now, in, uh, to think about this more broadly, to think about this more biblically, in Joseph's work, so Joseph the historian that, that um, is still published today, but he was kind of the first 
uh, historian of Christianity. There's these group called the Essenes, E-S-S-E-N-E-S, for those who want to look them up later. And they had this saying about oaths. He who cannot be believed without swearing by God is already condemned. He who believed without swearing by God, he is already condemned. So the teaching of this text seems pretty straightforward. Don't make an oath. Don't swear something that you can't fulfill. Your word needs to be your bond. And there's great wisdom in in what other people talked about this and even great wisdom, especially in how Jesus spoke about this. And Jesus, in his teaching here, his disciples, he's telling them that they should always tell the truth. He told them and tells us that we should be so true to our very words that the need for oath disappears, meaning your yes should always be a yes and your no should only be a no. Now, for some people, this form of theology is just airtight. There's no way that you would make an oath. And so this is why some people choose to live a certain way in society today with avoiding or without ever having to take an oath. Now, there are some people out there who who esteem this type of teaching, even though it seems to be contradicting in other people's minds of, of what the Bible is teaching altogether. Because if we look at the scriptures, we see that, well, God makes oaths and people make oaths with God. But here Jesus is saying that we shouldn't make a vow. We shouldn't take an oath. Now, some people, the way that they um, interpret scripture, their hermeneutic, if you will, or their basis of systematic theology, or their way that they theologically interpret the Bible is to actually take Jesus's words and elevate them over all the rest of scripture, right? These would be called red letter Christians, right? Where they say, there's a lot of disagreement in this book. So let's just see what Jesus says and ignore the rest of it, right? Because that's what people argue about. Or they say, let's go away from systematic theology because theology divides people within the church. So let's just see what Jesus says here. But, but we need to understand that there is a fuller view of Jesus' teaching when we see what he's teaching as coming from all of his truth, which is the scriptures. Now, people, in my opinion, who just only isolate Jesus' red letters and say, that's the teaching of our church, that's the doctrine or theology of my life, or they may even go a little bit broader and they say, the Sermon on the Mount is the only command by which we should live in. The Sermon on the Mount is my theology. Or they even say that I'm going to disregard the Old Testament and just be a New Testament Christian. Some churches even call themselves New New Testament Church. I just think theologically, it's just a wimpy way to read the text. And what a wimp is, is someone who doesn't like to combat with truth that they have. They're they're hiding the reality and the weight of what God has given us in his whole entire words. Wimps are insecure and scared to battle. Now, if you just take this position, I think it's just an unbiblical position where you isolate all of the scripture just from these red words, maybe in your scriptures. I think it's an unbiblical view of how to interpret the Bible. I also think it's a logically illiterate way to view the Bible because what is Jesus doing in this text? He's referring to things in the Old Testament. He's referring to passages in the Old Covenant. He's talking about the law as being from him. And he even says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. So the idea that we would discount other parts of Scripture rather than allowing ourselves to interpret Scripture with Scripture, well, if we discount that, then we're actually being anti-Christ and how he viewed Scripture. 
So I don't know why I got so fired up there for a little bit. But there is a biblical interpretation, I think, of how we need to view this text because it does become a stumbling block for some people and it does cause division within churches and in denominations and in, even in people's lives and their familyhood. Biblically, if we look at this text in the context of Scripture, if you're the reader of the Word, you may go, after looking at this text, wait a minute, doesn't God make oaths? But Jesus is saying not to. Well, let's examine those. I want you to turn to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 9, and let's look at verse 8. Genesis chapter 9, verse 8. Genesis chapter 9, verse 8, the whole section there. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the livestock and every beast of the earth, which you, as many, ha- as, many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Turn over several pages to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22. Look there in verse 16. Genesis 22, verse 16. Verse 16. And said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And now turn over to the book of Hebrews. So the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. After some of the Pauline letters, the book of Hebrews chapter 6. What the, what the book of Hebrews beautifully does is actually uh, form for us a biblical theology of God's work in the Old Testament. Again and again and again, what the book of Hebrews is doing is teaching us what we should know by heart from the testimony of old. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to their heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Or if you know the story in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, but in verses 68 through 74, what God does here is he promises that he would send a redeemer, and he would raise that redeemer from the dead. Or in Psalms chapter 95, verse 11, 119 and 106, and then 132, verse 11, it says there that he took oaths to guarantee his covenants. God takes oaths. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Or I have sworn an oath and have confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. Or the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. So what do we do with this? this? This possible conundrum or a possible contradiction. You know, for everyone who doesn't like the Bible, they say, it just contradicts itself back and forth. And you go, you haven't even read it. You don't know that. But does it here? Jesus is saying, don't take an oath. But here, God the Father is taking the oath with his people. John Stott, a late Anglican pastor in England, has a terrific quote on this subject in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He says that God takes oaths quote, not to increase his credibility, like we might take a note today, but to elicit and confirm our own faith with him. 
God doesn't take oaths because his truthfulness is in doubt, but because we, having told and heard so many lies in our own lives, are natural doubters. He's publicly doing something for our own sake because we naturally doubt him. When he was doing that Noahic covenant and making an oath with his people, he was doing that because they were scared and they thought he would go back on his word. When he was doing it with Abraham, he was making such a covenant, such an oath, because it was natural for people to doubt him. Or when he says that he loves you, how many times do you, Christian, need to be reminded That God has taken an oath that he will love you and see you to the end. That you will be with him in paradise. And there is nothing in the world that can take you out of his grip. Yet you need that promise from the Lord, don't you? It is a good thing that the one who is fully true reminds us even in our doubt of who he is. You see, thinking about oaths biblically means you've got to go to the reason for the oaths altogether. People are prone to be fake and false. And to the heart of the issue, we're both prone toward that. And we are already fake. Or even more cynically, we're doubters, naturally, of God's goodness. Now imagine being a parent to a young kid. And you say, hey, if you mow the yard and do all your chores, we'll go to breakfast anywhere you want on Saturday morning. What does that kid immediately say? Do you promise? Where did he learn that? How would that idea ever come in his mind? It wasn't a sense of, oh man, do you promise? It was a sense of, have you ever mowed the yard? Do you promise to take me to IHOP on a Saturday morning? In scripture, God knows that we need assurance of his reliability. Our standards for truth are so low that we expect falsehood from everyone, even from him. Circumstances in your own life lend to this thought that the dad that mistreated the mom changes your view of manhood, doesn't it? The teacher that was unfair to you on a grade or a project, it, it, teaches, it changes your view of authority, doesn't it? The, the friend that turns his or her back on you, it, it changes the, the way that when someone says, I would love to hang out with you, you go, ah, I've heard it before. The son that went off to who knows where. The market that dropped and never came back up. The job that no longer exists, even though you've trained for it for a while. Or the phone that never rings. For our sake, God does take oaths and makes promises of his own grace. His oaths reveal that we are accustomed to hearing lies. And the very need for a promise actually testifies that we are not reliable and that the world isn't altogether reliable for us. And here's the ethic that Christ is preaching in this passage. Here's the reason why he's bringing this up. Your yes should be yes, not probably. Your no should be no, not maybe. And if that's the case, the need for an oath would disappear. Now, here's what I think is the gist of this passage that that ought to point the Christian towards. Jesus has gathered people from afar and brought them near and is giving them instruction on the new heart that they need and why they need it. He is recognizing that they are in a fallen world and that their tendency is going to lean towards that fallenness. But rather, he is saying your righteousness needs to outdo those who you think are righteous. And one of those things is that your yes needs to be yes and your no needs to be no. And we are conditioned to say, well, but like, what if that yes is like a yes, but or a no, but, you know, under certain conditions? There's a famous celebrity recently who got married to another famous celebrity And the condition of their divorce is not so much on an affair if it were to take place, but if the affair takes place in the same country. 
So if an affair happens overseas, ah, you know, well, that was just one of those things in the contract. You can break the contract. But if the affair was done inside the United States, then, well, you got to stay together. And you're going, what at any point are we talking about anymore? And what Jesus is doing is he's taking people from the world and he's giving them a new ethic and how they are to treat and love and know one another. Jesus is speaking to his disciples of an everlasting kingdom. And he's telling them that their understanding of God's word and ways are misguided and wrong. He's talking about a kingdom with a different way to live by a different way to enter. You get that? A different way to live and a different way to enter. And Jesus says that the family... The people of God should be an exception to the world and how the world views an oath, how the world views a covenant. In God's kingdom, in God's covenant community, there should be no reason but for a yes to mean a yes and for a no to mean a no. You can see how just in the way that this thing is ordered of how it comes after all those big noticeable things that are in front of it, adultery, lust, affairs, divorce. And here he's saying Of course, the logical outflow of this is Christians are to keep their word, especially towards one another, because God has kept his word towards us. Now, when you think about this, when you think about this, the biblical interpretation of this, how do do you and I apply this teaching where Jesus is talking about not taking an oath, but then we see oaths are keeping us from sin? How should this truth about truth dictate our own lives? Or maybe a more pointed question, can you take an oath today? Let's just put it on the table. Can you take an oath today? This is something that Christians disagree on. Literal interpretation would have some people say, I can't join the military because I have to swear an oath to defend the flag, the constitution, and the country. Or I can't go into a marriage because I have to stand in front of 100 people and vow to another person that I will never leave you nor go astray from this relationship. Or they can't go into certain contracts because those contracts carry within it the language of divorce or the language of breaking an oath or making an oath altogether. So I think there's a little bit of application that I'd like to bring to your attention there, number four on your outline, of why I think Christians can take an oath, just uniquely. Some say in a blanket sort of way, no, a Christian cannot take an oath. A Christian cannot take a vow, meaning that if they were asked to serve in the military, they cannot in good conscience do so. In making a vow before their spouse, they cannot in good conscience do so. They cannot in good conscience place their hand on a Bible and vow to defend the Constitution if they were ever elected to the office of the presidency of the United States. And these are God-fearing people who make these distinctions. Most Christians, though, take a different approach, and I would put myself in this category. Following the interpretations and and teachings of reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin, who uh, clearly, I think, and helpfully distinguish between a public and a private vow, a a public or necessary oath versus a private and unnecessary oath in the Christian's life. In private, amongst brothers and sisters, we shouldn't need an oath. Taking an oath in a family would be a weird thing to do, right? It's your family, right? This is why it's so devastating when, when a parent will pass away and the kids will just go after each other for whatever small fortune might be there. Your family, what's wrong with you? So we shouldn't need to do that when we're around one another. And I think what the context here is important because what Jesus has done is he has gathered his own people, set them out as disciples, and saying how you ought to believe is different, and also now how you ought to live is also different as well. 
If I say I'll be there, I shouldn't need an oath. If I say I will pray for you, I shouldn't need to make a promise. But because God has taken oaths for the sake of a doubting world, I think we can also take oaths for the sake of doubters around us. Oaths are never ideal, but the law was intended to regulate truth. Laws about divorce, about property, local and federal laws hopefully restrain sin, right? This is why, whether it's financial or traffic or where you can build and can't build, this helps us live in harmony together. It helps us keeping from sinning. So I want to promote to you a couple of principles about oath-taking and its aim, of why I think that Christians can take oaths in a public way. First, a first principle would be that Christians should be truthful no matter the cost. Our words should be so worthy that no one would need an oath from us. I think it's fine to take an oath or a vow if people don't know us. Right? They don't know our word. God did this towards those who didn't fully grasp his glory. They should have known his glory, but he still made ways to make a vow with them so that they would understand that he is good to his word. Jesus spoke under an oath at his own trial. He would have done this. The rules of the game would have been so set that he would have to speak under an oath. Or Paul took vows in Romans 1 and 2 Corinthians 1 and 1 Thessalonians 2. But no matter what, the first principle is be truthful no matter the cost. And second, Christians can take oaths and vows in a courtroom before entering military or political service or before the public and marriage or things like contracts. Because if Christians weren't able to do this, imagine a world without a Christian general in charge. Or imagine a world where a Christian couldn't be a good godly witness in a trial amongst his brother or sister. Or imagine a world where Christians couldn't wed one another because they couldn't take a vow in front of their friends or their God without this. Whose home would we live near? Or on what grounds would we harvest? Or which emergency room would we enter when they say, can I have your credit card? And you say, no, you can't. Christians can take public oaths in a doubting world, and through that we have an opportunity to not only shine his light, but also portray his truthfulness to a doubting world. Third principle is embracing a doubting world by pushing back with God's truth in a Christian worldview. We have an amazing opportunity to get involved in and subdue the earth as originally commanded to Adam. By saying that we couldn't take an oath in the way that the public views an oath would actually say that we have to retreat from the world and live in some cabin in the woods, having nothing to do with anyone around us. But remember that it was Jesus who told his people to go into the world and be salt and light. Sometimes we do have to play by the world's rules and taking oaths and vows. He's called us to be salt and light, and that we cannot, and we cannot do that if we are disengaging from the world altogether. I want to bring your attention to a passage in the book of Philippians. So if you turn to the book of Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, just, just understanding that I think you can, as a Christian, take an oath or make a covenant in a public way because that is a response of God calling us into the world in which we live in. Philippians chapter 2 verse 14 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Verse 15, That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. To take an oath is to be involved in the world of lies and liars. 
And as Christians, we bring the transforming power of the gospel to the very same world. We embrace the fortitude and courage of people like Joseph and Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah. But more than anything, we take on Christ's cross and push towards him bringing his glory to the nations. Now, there are three challenges in this that I I have on your outline. There are three challenges that that this sort of attitude towards oaths and vow taking take place. This will come up with challenges, and there are challenges that uh, apply this truth to our own lives, and they're super brief. The, The challenges to our truthfulness is our carelessness in our words, our cowardliness with our words, and ultimately the cross behind our words. We're often careless about our truth, aren't we? We're afraid to speak the truth, even when we want to do so in love. But our Proverbs are so clear that out of love, we'll be exceptionally true with the principles, grace, and character, and attributes of God. We are far too often careless with our truth, and that is a challenge to be completely truthful. We're also cowardly with truth. We often tell people what we want them to hear. Some Christians are actually terrible at this. Uh, you know, how was the sermon? Oh, it was a really good sermon. It's like, no, it wasn't. Don't tell me that. Or, or how are you feeling today? I'm feeling fine. No, you're not. You're literally crying. What's wrong with you? It's okay. Whether from a pulpit or in a conversation or even in a thought, we tell people what we think they want to hear instead of being clear with the truth of Scripture and from Scripture. It's not our own truth, but we apply specific verses and teachings of the book to our own lives and other people's lives. Sometimes this means we should say that is a sin. And sometimes that means we should say grace is greater than all our sin. But the greatest challenge here is not so much the carelessness or the cowardliness, though those are really deep and dark challenges, but the greatest challenge is the need for the cross of Christ altogether within our truthfulness. You see, the cross of Christ is the solution to our actual words because our words show what is actually in our heart. And when we examine our heart, as Jesus has done again and again, paragraph after paragraph, is actually saying our heart is actually darkened and broken and needing of transformation altogether. And he comes in full truth himself through the person of Jesus to bring us not only the demonstration, but also the opportunity for reconciliation toward him by the cross. We know it's obvious that it's our duty to be faithful with our words, to not lie, to follow up with our promises to the T. But the problem still remains. We break promises and say false things. We need oaths in our time. Why? Well, when faced with the standards of Jesus, we have neither a pure heart nor pure character. This is why the passage necessarily drives us to the gospel itself. The root is so deep that we cannot kill it. No psychological path or technique can uproot it, yet we are incapable of following the Lord's standards on our own. And so we need the Lord's grace in the deepest part of our heart. You would imagine the disciples would be undone at this point, but it is also the same Jesus who is teaching them on how to live, but also will come soon after this passage, maybe a year and a half after, but actually give his life over in their place so that they can, in obedience and in response to his goodness, now walk in the light, now be salt and light in the world, recognizing that they are sinful, they repent of their sins and turn to him, and by him being perfect and righteous and all true, he pays the actual debt that effectively saves them from their sins. We need the gospel here. That's what this passage is about. I bet you didn't know that when you first open it up. And it says, don't make a vow. That simple instruction ought to make you go, 
I am a dirty, rotten sinner, and I need the Lord's grace so much in my life. Even my words are not good enough and pure and righteous. The gospel teaches us to ask the one who gives the standard to forgive us from breaking it. We ask the one who kept the standard in perfect righteousness to give us his righteousness and to clothe us with it. And this is why the Lord, and this is what the Lord does. He accepts his children and grants us the family resemblance that he requires of us. He sees us on the other side of the water and draws us to himself. That that amazing image of the Exodus in the Old Testament where the Lord sees us as far away, makes all the way, makes all the path open for his people to walk through and then draws us near to himself. He sets us up in salvation and then tells us to be obedient by giving us his spirit and directing us towards obedience. In Christ, we are a new creation, yet we await a wholly new creation. Our challenge is to accept his goodness and righteousness. Our challenge is to put our hard hearts aside and to take on the righteousness that he gives us so eagerly. So with this text, may we hear Jesus' call to truthfulness. May it strike us as something that is so unlike the world, but is so like him. May we measure our words carefully with courage. May our yeses be yes and our noes be no. And in our church, may we reflect toward one another what was and is reflected toward us, the the true righteousness of Christ. May that be our walking call in all of our relationships towards one another. There should be no need for anything but a yes and a no because we worship the one who is true. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful for the testimony that your scriptures have. We are grateful and thankful that your word speaks about you as true. Because if you were not true, if you were not perfect, if you were not holy, then we would have nothing to worship. And so, Lord, as we constantly aim and miss the mark, we pray that you would transform us into the likeness of your Son. We pray that you would help us and to give us courage for when we say yes to mean it, when we say no to mean it. May you draw us near and teach our ways. We pray this in the name and in the power of your Son, Jesus. Amen.